welcome to the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life in Scottsdale, Arizona. This is the Out of the Park podcast series. We invite you to join us for other programming you can find on our website at www.framparkcenter.org. Join us. This is the Out of the Park podcast series from the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life. I'm Wes Avram. Uh, Pastor of Pinnacle Presbyterian Church, uh, very involved with the Park Center and all that that means. Pinnacle hosts the Park Center, but we uh, seek to appeal to broader questions and a broader audience beyond simply this congregation. And part of that is our Out of the Park podcast series in which we try to think with friends and experts and people who have interesting things to say about big questions. Today, our guest is Dr. Kyle Jensen. Professor Jensen is a professor of English at Arizona State University and director of the undergraduate writing program. He is no stranger to the Out of the Park podcast. (laughs) Kyle, you and I did a podcast in this series a while back on listening. I think you've done one with Mike Hegeman on reading. Today, we're going to talk about intelligence, particularly the artificial kind. Let me tell you why. The, uh, among several topics that we've taken up in live programs of the Park Center, one of them is all of the recent conversation about artificial intelligence, what some people call machine learning. Uh, it's been in the press quite a bit lately. We're recording this in spring of 2023. Even in the past several weeks there, before we're recording of this podcast, there were a lot of news coverage about chat GPT, GPT-4, people resigning their positions at Google to talk against it, people who are advocates of it, uh, a lot of conversation from places like the Center for Humane Technology, the Institute on the Future, all calling for, dramatically calling for a pause in development of this technology, others saying that you can't pause, you have to go forward, some people saying the world is over, mankind is done, <laughs> others saying the... Uh, that uh, there's a great future of medical technology and creativity that we're just on the edge of. Kyle knows the answer to all those questions. I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, Dr. Jensen, in your work at ASU, you work with students who are using this technology. You use it yourself. You've been studying it for a while. You are not an engineer. You are not a technologist. You are a professor of English and writing. That's right. Why artificial intelligence? Why is that interesting to you? And what is it to begin with? It's, it seems like maybe the question you're asking is, why am I not hanging out with pencils and, and regular paper? Why am I hanging out with <laughs> algorithm? That's a, that's a, you know, I'm going to answer this question in two ways. The first way is that since I've been in graduate school, I had the good fortune of working with a dissertation advisor who had a very expansive definition of what the study of writing could involve. A lot of the field of rhetoric and composition where I specialize tends to think about writing instruction largely in terms of how to write more effectively or how to teach students to write more effectively. And that's a really valuable exercise to invest one's career in. So there are a lot of colleagues in my in my field who have spent entire careers being extremely thoughtful about how to help students learn to write more effectively to bolster their literate development so that when they leave you know, their post-secondary education, they enter the world with a vast array of tools that can help them engage you know, professionally with greater success, develop communities with greater success to support others who also want to engage in literate development, 
with greater success. But that's only half of the story, as far as I'm concerned. I write about this in my first book, that there's this whole component of writing studies research that can look at the phenomenon of writing as an area of inquiry unto itself that is not reducible to how to help students learn to write more Mm -hmm. effectively. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that they're in competition necessarily. And in fact, when I teach writing courses, I try to blend the two. So the way that I frame it in my first book is I say, there's this how component, but then there's this what component. What is writing? What is writing to humanity? And when we start to ask those kinds of questions, we start asking really interesting things such as, how do we study writing if it doesn't entail learning how to become more expert as writers ourselves? Let me ask you a question about that. Because my interest is in how this takes us to questions of faith as well. And the question of writing, I want to ask you what you mean when you say that. Do you mean pencil on paper um, and writing down what happens between one period and the next? Or are you thinking about writing as creativity, writing as forms of self-expression? What is, I know there's a whole history of philosophy Right. In the 20th century, that used writing as a metaphor, right. uh, not a not a technique, as a metaphor for uh, human in, in, inscribing of consciousness. Right? I, what do you mean when you say writing? I'm going to answer it in two ways. The first way is that there's a really brilliant media historian named Lisa Gittleman, who studies writing technologies and the broad definition under which she places writing technologies is anything that inscribes. Hmm. So. The advantage of that approach is that it has a very materially oriented approach to the study of the practice of writing. And if you think about inscription, you can think about, you know, the inscription of, you know, digital media. You can think about the inscription of cuneiform. You can think about the inscription of just about anything. But Mm -hmm. for her and for scholars who kind of build off of her work, there needs to be a trace and that that trace is an indication that writing has taken place. Now, the next part of your question, and this is the second component, is what is it a trace of? Mm -hmm. I really like the work of, uh, he was in the the comparative studies department at Ohio State University. His name is Brian Rotman. And he does this, writes these brilliant books about the relationship between math and alphabetic writing. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he carried, he has this, this really wonderful book called Becoming Beside Ourselves. And he characterizes writing as the exportation of consciousness. So if you combine those two definitions together, writing is the material act of creating inscriptions on material surfaces that we hypothesize is the exportation of human consciousness as such. And that's a really nice definition of writing Mm -hmm. in part because it allows us to range in a lot of different types of directions. For example, does the inscription of one's consciousness onto, let's say, an artificial intelligence platform function differently? Does it tell us something different about our consciousness than, say, writing with a pen Mm -hmm. and a piece of paper or writing in any kind of media, whether it be a record player or, you know, or, you know, a video or whatever the case may be, so, or film. Well, if in the alphabet, as we've known it for millennia, is an inscription of speech or a record of speech in some way, uh, but there are other alphabets that are inscriptions of images right, and describe human behavior in terms of images. 
And we're talking now about artificial intelligence, which is, first of all, we can talk about what that is. Right. But it's an inscription of, is it human voice? Is it human consciousness? Human memory? Is it the collective unconscious? What is the? What are we inscribing when we are going? When we are asking a computer program to just to answer a question? I think the best way to answer that question is we just don't really know yet. Ah. And I say that earnestly because the technologies, while they have been around, like generative AI and large language modeling have been in place for, you know, at least the last decade or so. It hasn't reached the level of public attention that ChatGPT did this past November. Um but from a technological perspective, the size, the speed, the scale of generative AI is such that, and it's evolving so quickly that it's difficult to say for certain where it's headed and what the technology represents or is an mm -hmm. indicator of. I guess what I would say is, you know, terms like the, the collective unconscious, those are theoretical terms that I think are valuable if we're trying to understand human psychology. But I also think that, again, going back to the importance of paying attention to the material domains of writing technologies, it's important not to overemphasize the human element of those technologies, not because it doesn't have a massive impact on humanity in general, but because it causes us to overlook the material components that need to be in place in order for that technology to do the work that it does, if that makes sense. So. If we're talking about artificial intelligence and we're only interfacing with the software or the application as such, we overlook the fact that there are tons of computers working together, like these massive processors working in coordination, all sorts of hardware and companies that are interacting with one another, the exchange of money. Um, you know, shortly after GPT, GPT-3 kind of made a big splash, um, Microsoft invested $10 billion in its development and its further development. Well, that is not the, the, the Microsoft's ability to fund that way right. is not s separate from the technology itself. And so what you see is a convergence of all of these material resources coming into one space. So what is it a representation of? It's a representation of a, a lot of complex factors coming together in, in, in a kind of orchestral way to produce something that we just haven't heard the end of at this point. And I think that's probably what makes us nervous about it is we don't necessarily know where it's headed and it's really difficult to determine the implications of it because it's so big and complex. Now, you and I have a pretty similar in some ways academic background having studied rhetoric, but yeah. studied them in different contexts. And I love the kind of, the, and we often talk about different authors too, and that's why I love our conversations. And, Part of this, too, I think my studies in rhetoric years ago often sort of went to the, the philosophical question of rhetorical crisis. What is a rhetorical moment or sometimes called the rhetorical situation? You know, Hans Blumenberg, the philosopher, defined the rhetorical situation as, you know, facing lacking definitive evidence but being f uh, forced to act mm -hmm. are the fundamental prerequisites of a rhetorical situation. Mm -hmm. which would suggest that that's exactly what we're in. We lack definitive evidence, as you describe, of what new technologies will produce. And, at, and yet we are compelled to make choices 
in implementation, in adoption, in use, in meaning, in regulation, in interpretation and understanding, and even how their their religious implications. And so we are bouncing back and forth among uh, imperfect uh, understandings, lack of definitive evidence, yet still making decisions, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I love the way you, you're continuing to talk about how we don't yet know, and yet there are some things we do know. You've been looking at the technology, particularly as it relates to ChatGPT and all of that. Um, can you give us a, a quick overview of what this is? If I'm driving down the road this morning listening to this podcast and I know nothing of what artificial intelligence is, what are we talking about? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I should probably underscore the fact that I'm not an engineer. So my explanation is what I have learned by working with engineers. Um, I consult with a company based out of Tel Aviv, Israel, called AI21 Labs. And I work with a wonderful group of folks there who are thinking very deeply and humanely about the role that artificial intelligence can play in the evolution of humanity and human societies. And the best example, the best explanation that uh, one of my colleagues there gave me was he asked me to take out my cell phone. And he said, why don't you start typing a text message to someone that you know? So I immediately started texting my wife. And he said, what's happening while you are texting? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, the text is auto-populating what it anticipates I want to say. He goes, how accurate is it? And I said, well, sometimes it's accurate, but more often than not, it's making recommendations or in some cases making alterations that fundamentally affect the meaning of what I'm sending my wife. And so we have plenty of examples circulating on the Internet called you know, autofill fails, where you're sending these hilarious messages right. to the absolute <laughs> wrong person. And this was a really nice illustration. So he said, okay, so if you want to think about generative AI, that's a form of generative AI. Why do you think it's not particularly successful in anticipating your needs? And I said, I don't really know. I would guess that it probably just doesn't have enough examples that it can draw from in order to accurately predict what I need to say next and goes, that's exactly right. So what large language models do is they're scaled up versions of basically predictive algorithms that Mm -hmm. say, based on the word that preceded the initial word that you wrote, this is the most probable word that will come after it. And so I said, wow, that's really amazing. They're, they're basically statistical, uh, they're probabilistic statistical mm-hmm. algorithms. And I said, well, you know, I knew the answer to this. I'm like, what, what kind of scale are we talking about here? And the answer for the large language model that they've developed is 178 billion right. textual parameters. We can't wrap our head around right. how big that is. So earlier you asked, well, what is this a representation of? Well, number one, I think, Large language models are a representation of the fact that we have collectively um, or we have successfully collected a large amount of texts and made them available for public consumption. Right. And what these algorithms do is they say, okay, based on what these texts tell us, this is probably what needs to be said next. And the company that I work with, they say, you know, these, the technologies, large language models do a couple of things really, really well. Um, they make suggestions on what should appear next, and then they're able to kind of abstract and summarize. 
The mistake that I think a lot of people are making is, well, if they have the ability to make suggestions on what will appear next, and if they have the ability to abstract and summarize, then they must understand mm -hmm. what it is they're reading. And I don't think that that's the case. In the history of technology, there's, in some sense, the incremental advances of a particular tool have a, have a tendency to produce a new thing, mm -hmm. not just a better version of an old thing. We, we build them on the basis of doing something we used to do more efficiently, more effectively, but then we find ourselves in times doing something different. The invention of the automobile, for example, at one point was a way of getting from one place to another more effectively than having a horse. But eventually, in a very short amount of time, it fundamentally changed how we move, right? Not just how we, how, we use, how we move from the place we used to move to the other place, it, how we move in general, what, how we imagine energy, how we imagine space, how we imagine our life together. It radically monopolized movement in a way that um, was unprecedented and unimaginable when Henry Ford you know, made his Model T. Uh, part of the question, you know, and that's the idea of a radical monopoly or the distinction what Jacques Ellul used to make between a tool and a technique. Mm -hmm. A tool is something I can lift up and put down to do, to accomplish a purpose that I've determined outside the use of the tool itself. A technique is the, the very thing that affects how I decide what's, youth, what's worth doing. It's the environment in which I swim. For me, early on, a smartphone was a tool. I could pick it up, I could put it down, I could live without it. My children and their children's children can't live without it. Mm -hmm. Just as I can't live without an automobile, I can't live. My entire world is shaped around this technology and it's now become the context in which I live. I think the, part of the question about artificial intelligence is, are we at that point? Are we at a point of an emergent reality whose potential we don't yet know that allows us to do things more effectively now that we've been wanting to do, but may eventually change what we want to do. So I think the answer to that question is yes, but there's a lot baked within, baked into that answer that I think it's important to kind of you know, articulate. Number one, when certain kinds of technologies take hold, and alter human behavior. It's not just simply that they shape our bodies in new ways, they also alter the way that we talk and conceptualize ourselves. So, you know, I I was born before, you know, the the onset of ubiquitous personal computing, but I remember interacting with personal computers probably around four or five years old. Mm -hmm. But when I was growing up, you know, you don't, one never talked about one's attention span as having bandwidth, for right. example. Right. So that's a really good example of how the technology of, let's say, the, inter the emergence of the Internet can radically alter how we conceptualize our bodies and our attention span and so on. That's oftentimes the hardest thing to see. And so paying attention to language is really crucial because you can then start to say, okay, how is this shaping the, like, exactly. the words that we use are not incidental to, you know, are, are getting right. around in the world. They're indicative of how we conceptualize the world. So there's kind of a circular power in language that we first use language we're familiar with to describe a new thing. And then eventually it turns back and we begin to describe ourselves. Yeah. The body is a perfect example. You know, in the rise of the industrial revolution, 
revolution, we first began to describe the body as a machine. Mm -hmm. We talk about the body as a mechanics. Right. And then we begin at the, at the beginning of systems theory and cybernetics, we began to talk about the body as a set of systems. Right. We have an immune system. We have an endocrine system. We have all these systems in our body. And now... In the, in the information age, after the DNA is cracked, we talk about the body as, as, a, as information. Right. What next? What is you our know? data point? What is our data point? Yeah. At what point do we begin to describe ourselves, not just our consciousness, but even our bodies, in light of the technologies that we swim in? And eventually, I want to get around to the, to the question of how do we then begin to understand God? Before we get there, I think it's a really important point that we circle back and recognize that this apocalyptic view of technology is not peculiar to the onset of artificial intelligence. Right. There's a wonderful book called um, The End of Work or something like right. that by Daniel Susskind where he traces that the role that that narrative has played, that kind of eschatological vision mm -hmm. of what will happen once this new technology takes over. Um, and it's fundamentally about fears associated with human labor and mm -hmm. uh, financial and economic insecurity, which is a real concern for a majority of the world. So I, I don't want to diminish that. But what I do think, you know, you mentioned earlier the Hans Blumenberg, the... Um, the rhetorical situation, what is the rhetorical situation? My my go-to person on that is Kenneth Burke, and as far as I can tell, he introduced the term, the rhetorical situation, for the first time. And what he meant by that was the fact that no matter what historical moment we find ourselves in at any given point, there is going to be misinterpretation. There is going to be conflict, right. linguistic conflict in particular. So if that's the water that we swim in, we know we can predict with pretty clear, clear eyes that that's we're going to continue to have verbal conflict and written conflict and that because of the complications associated with interpretation. But one of the nice things about that insight, it feels kind of like dire, like, OK, well, we're, I guess we're going to just argue forever and there will be no resolution. But one of the things that that does is it allows us to then go back in history and say, well, how have we historically coped with exactly those kinds of conflicts when new technologies emerge? And one of the ways that we do that is we use familiar storytelling forms that help us make sense of a new situation in terms that we find familiar. And so I think that uh, before I answer the question about, about how students are taking it up, and they are, I mean, they're feeling that. I'll tell this, a really fun story about mm -hmm. that here in a moment. But that, I think, is the, the reckoning that we have to have as a society to go back and look at those argumentative or narratological tendencies and say, is this a retrofit mm -hmm. for, how, for what's actually occurring? Is this consistent? Is this a consistent articulation with the situation as it's emerging right now? Um, because until we start to unlearn some of those argumentative tendencies, we're never going to approach the AI on its own terms. And then we're starting to, we're going to do what we typically do is anthropomorphize um, those technologies, or we're going to graft motives onto uh, the technologies themselves or onto the people who develop them, which may be true, but that's not necessarily going to lead to a deeper understanding of what the technologies are, what affordances are available, what their mm -hmm. limits are, and how to counterbalance those limits if we're concerned that 
they will compromise the safety or well-being of humanity as a whole. And what kinds of essential human practices we wish to preserve, what we wish to let That's go exactly of. That's exactly right. How do we remain, how do we retain a critical consciousness in a, in a, con, in a setting of rapid acceleration and change and acceleration unknown uh, in human history? And how do we kind of preserve uh, body memory, right? That's um, exactly right. And how do we not reduce... In a context of an overwhelming argument, lacking definitive evidence, right. we tend to reduce and look at small parts that we can get a hold of, which is helpful. But you know, Will, William Stahl in book God and the Chip talked about tech. You know, tried to redefine technology. So we have a tendency in culture to talk about technology in terms of the machines, the technology, you know, the the mechanisms themselves. He says technology is the whole context, mm -hmm. is the use, is the misuse. User error is part of technology. Right. There's no such thing as user error. User error is part of how the technology is used. There's the um, production, there's the labor issues, there's the whole social setting is the, techno is the technology. Okay. And you have to both move toward the small to not miss something, but also continue to step back. It's kind of breathing in and breathing out I to agree. try to get some sense of what's happening. I agree. And here's a, so I promised you a story and, and yeah. people routinely ask me because they know I'm involved in AI development and working with these brilliant minds who are creating these technologies. Um, so you have three little girls. What are you advising? And the thing that I consistently say is that my job is to ensure that they have artificial intelligence literacy so that they can make decisions about the technology and watch it evolve as they evolve as well. So I have my, my daughters will very soon begin coding and I want them to learn programming languages. Um, I stress this with my our friends' children and I oftentimes talk with them, what do you think about this artificial intelligence stuff? So I... Ironically enough, I was standing at my youngest daughter's soccer practice, and one of her teammates, older brother, who's in junior high school, happened to come up, and we were talking about summer plans and that, that type of thing. And I said, you know, um, I want to encourage you to think about developing programming language. You need to learn these things. AI is going to be the language that shapes your adult life. And the earlier you can get involved in that, um, the better off you will be just in terms of making decisions on how you want to relate to it. And he stopped me cold. This is like a, a, a 12 mm -hmm. or 13 year old stopped me cold. I don't want anything to do with that nonsense. That, that stuff's dangerous to humanity and I don't want anything to do with it. And so the point of this particular story is that here you have a 12 or 13 year old who's maybe consuming media, but not with the same level of scope that you and I do on a day to day basis. But that fear that, that, eschatological mm -hmm. narrative is already shaping his perspective and to the degree where he's saying, I don't want to learn more about it. I want to hold it at an arm's distance. Well, one of the things that we talk about regularly at the university is the importance of developing digital literacies. If you know how it, it would be the equivalent of not knowing how to read and write, um, you know, alphabetic texts, let's say um, we need to develop AI literacy, learning how to read and write in code, to understand how the algorithms do what they do so that when we advance social policy that is designed to protect people who may not have had the same mm -hmm. benefits of and access to that, that learning, we do so with a thoughtful perspective rather than just saying, I heard somebody that I trust that I can't even name say that this is a danger to me and I will therefore yeah. hold it at an arm's distance and not learn anything about it. 
Kyle, this is all the time we have today, but this conversation needs to continue, so we're going to do that and then have a second podcast of the, from the continuation of this conversation. So this is Fran Park Center Out of the Park podcast series. Uh, tune in next time for the continuation of this conversation about artificial intelligence and human consciousness and development of faith. Thanks for joining us at our Out of the Park podcast series. If you like this program and would like to check out more, go to our website at www.framparkcenter.org.